Thank you for checking out the Best of Pod. This is a special edition of the Best of. It's one of two Best Ofs this week. Uh, decided to break it up because we got a lot of stuff. Three shows in two days leads to a lot of material. And so this will basically be the NBA Finals preview pod. Three interviews, Damon Amendolara, Tim Bontemps of the Washington Post, and then Howard Beck of Bleacher Report. Now, the interview with Damon, obviously of CBS Sports Radio, starts talking about Tiger Woods. So you get a little bit of that story that was breaking that night, and then we hone in on the NBA Finals, and then you also get a bit of nonsense at the end. And then it's straight NBA Finals preview with Tim and Howard. So hope you enjoy that. And here are those interviews. We go now to the Toyota of Hollywood hotline and bring in my friend Howard Beck from Bleacher Report, getting ready to cover the NBA Finals. Howard, are you bored yet waiting for this thing to start? I know you got some family time this weekend, which is nice, but like, is your wife ready to kick you out of the house at this point? <laughs> uh, no. Uh, happily, no. Uh, well my done. My wife and daughter are, ha- are ha- happy to have me around for a few extra days. So, uh, you know what? I, for the NBA's sake, short series, especially in the conference finals, are a terrible thing. Uh, I think this has been a horrendous playoffs on the whole, and maybe there will be an epic finals to make up for it. But on a personal level, um, I'm perfectly fine with the extra gap between series. Yeah, I'm sure. I know how hard it is this time of year, how much time you guys, uh, national writers especially, spend on the road. All right, let's talk a little bit about this series. There's a lot of different storylines. Is there one in particular that is the most interesting, or perhaps even a better question, that is going to be the most impactful for you, that is not just a good headline, but is really going to be a storyline in this series? I don't know if there's any one that is... Defining it because we don't these things take on a life that we that we can't anticipate. So, to me, game one starts to determine how those things go. I mean, we could sit here and say, okay, you know, how much does LeBron have on the line? How much do the Warriors have on the line? What does this mean for Durant's reputation and legacy because of the move he made? What does it mean for LeBron uh, if he can get a second title to Cleveland, or does it even matter because hey, he delivered uh, on the promise he made there? Those things will all matter going in. We'll talk about Steve Kerr's absence and whether there's a chance of him returning, and we'll talk about matchups and, and how these guys uh, try to uh, defend each other. I mean, all that will go into it, but nothing to me really can be defining until the series actually starts because, as I say, these things kind of take on a life of their own as they unfold. And, you know, last year – you could have said, hey, things are going exactly to form and exactly how we expected. And certainly there was a lot of buzz after game four that we thought this thing was over. It was three to one Warriors, as we know, and everyone figured that's probably it. And then the suspension comes and everything changes. But, you know, that's that's why, you know, I, the, the prognosticating, we you know, we all kind of do is to an extent a, a bit uh, – you know, uh, pointless in that there's so much that we, you know, you just can't foresee. That's the beauty of sport. And let's hope that there's not much we can foresee because there's been too much predictability in these playoffs as it is. Well, that kind of like, I don't know what to ask you after that. If nothing we say matters, then like, <laughs> thanks, Howard. <laughs> Goodbye. Um, I would say some of the interesting things that have my eye going to this series, uh, obviously the matchups, because NBA playoff series are so matchup driven. I am curious how the Cavaliers choose to guard the Warriors and if LeBron James spends the entirety of his time guarding Kevin Durant. Um, 
how else could they possibly approach that? Not necessarily a prediction, but like what are the options for Cleveland matchup wise to maybe not have LeBron take on that defensive burden for the entirety of the series? Well, they have a problem. They have a problem because uh, ideally you would want LeBron, your best defender, to spend as much time on Durant as possible. Problem is, uh, they have to figure out what to do about Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green. Um, LeBron needs to be a force offensively, and so the more time he's spending either you know uh, banging with Draymond, wrestling with them, which you know has has you know been to their both of their detriment at times. Uh, the more time he spends wrestling with him, or the more time he spends trying to chase down Kevin Durant, who might just be the best offensive player in the NBA, by the way. Um, the less energy that, that LeBron has for the other end. And that team, the Cavaliers, doesn't function well when LeBron's not functioning well. Yes, they won some games with him at a, at a, at a lesser level. And Kyrie Irving has had some superb performances in these playoffs on some nights when LeBron maybe wasn't at his best for a half or maybe even for the game sometimes. But that was against the Pacers or the Raptors or the Celtics. or They're not the Warriors. LeBron James, over the last few years, since he's returned to Cleveland, when he has not been at his best, or specifically when he's been out, when he's on the bench, when he misses a game, that team just doesn't function at the same high level without him. As as good as Kyrie Irving is, he can't make the game easier for everyone else the way that LeBron does. And so LeBron is going to have some heavy defensive burdens placed on him because the Warriors have four All-Stars. And he's going to have to spend time perhaps on all of them. And if that wears him down and makes him less of a force at the offensive end, that's a problem for Cleveland. Yeah, absolutely. And the way the Warriors play is so taxing defensively for teams, too. There's not really a place to hide for not only LeBron, but for anyone else. Um, Is there a way Cleveland can win games in this series without playing a level of defense that they haven't played really almost all year? Like, could they actually just shoot their way and outscore Golden State, or is that a strategy that is just not possible against this team? I don't think they have a chance. If if, if, if if, if If the goal were to try to just outscore them, um it's not going to happen. I mean, that was what the Rockets were hoping to do if, if they got the, the opportunity because they knew they couldn't stop them. Cleveland has to play a, a level of defense that we haven't seen consistently from them. And it's been better in the playoffs. But again, it's been better in the playoffs playing limited offensive teams. The Pacers, not a great offensive team. Toronto, good, not great. Boston, didn't have Isaiah Thomas for most of it. And even then, they're one-dimensional uh, to a large extent because they're so Isaiah-centric. The Warriors can beat you so many different ways that I don't know if the, if the Warriors have that level of defense in them this year. We'll see. But um, we didn't see it much, obviously, late in the season. It appears they flipped the switch. But, again, when we say flip the switch, they've been playing, you know, three decent but not great uh, teams for the last six weeks. You know, nobody at the level of the Warriors, and in fairness – there are no teams that are at the level of the Warriors. <laughs> just don't even know, you know, how to assess the Cavaliers' defense because um, th- this is a whole different animal. And you know, uh, there's a reason they were down three-one a year ago before rallying back. And you know, and there's reasons they rallied back, and it's not to, to denigrate that. It was, it was a huge, huge comeback. But um, 
you could argue they were outgunned even at the time, and that was before the Warriors got Kevin Durant. Yeah, that, that guy, it's it's almost not fair, but they they did the job to acquire him, so I guess fair is fair. Uh, Howard Beck is the guest with me, Craig Hoffman. Howard is the senior NBA writer for Bleacher Report. I am in for Alex Dono tonight here on Miami Sports Radio 560 WQAM. Uh, a two-part question for you, Howard, and one is uh, another prediction. So uh, I know that you just have to do your best. Uh, we established your disdain for predictions uh, when it comes to the NBA Finals. But what have you made of the narrative around Steph Curry in the last two NBA Finals versus whatever reality you might think they match in terms of his performance versus what people have made of his performance? And, and do you think he is much better off uh, to change that narrative this year both because of health and the presence of Kevin Durant? Well, you know, last year, I think they really had underplayed, the Warriors had underplayed Curry's uh, health issues, uh, the knee that he had, that he had turned uh, early in the playoffs. I think it was definitely a factor. And I think they just, you know, guys being prideful as they are, you never want to use excuses or chalk it up. But there was no question he wasn't at his best. There's also no question the Cavaliers did a decent job, but Curry at his best in the full health, uh, you know, probably isn't as easily contained. Um, two years ago, you know, it's such a funny thing. You know, we, we we remember Curry going back-to-back MVP and unanimous the second time. The numbers he's put up, the performances he's put up, the clutch shots he's put up, and you forget for a moment that Andre Godala was the MVP of the 2015 Finals, and the reason was that. The, the guys that you would normally expect to take that title, your leading scorer types, Curry and Clay Thompson, neither one of them really had a great finals. And it was it was pretty ugly at times. And then last year, you know, um, it, you know that that whole series just kind of got strange. So, um, what do we make of Curry in the finals? Look, I I don't I don't read too much into it myself. Um, I'm very curious to see as we head into it what. Um, what his approach is, you know, is this going to be, you know, the, you know point, point Curry could simply be setting up Clay Thompson, Draymond, and Kevin Durant. I mean, Kevin Durant could carry this team and average 35 a game in the series easily, and 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 Steph could take a back role and or a, 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 you know a secondary role um, because they have that much talent there. And but that's you know that's the whole that's the beauty of, of what they put together. They can shift this wherever the weakness is defensively they can ride whoever has the hot hand um but i you know i i don't i don't think that curry needs to be judged by the last two finals or whatever happens in this finals and especially look if they win this which i think most of us expect and if they win it because they added kevin durant and durant is is taking some of those clutch shots down the stretch or he's having the big numbers that's what you get him for you know and that's what a team is for and you know it doesn't all have to be defined by one guy. I think it's one of the unfortunate fallacies we fall into with the NBA. Yeah, I agree with that. And it seems you've been around him far more than I have that Curry would be perfectly okay with that, no? I don't think that this is a guy who, who you know, has, you know, he's, he's not Kobe Bryant, you know, he's not LeBron. He's not, he didn't come into the league uh, with any notion of saying, I need to be one of the greatest ever. I mean, it's not to say that he doesn't want to be great. Everybody wants to be great. And, and he is certainly somebody who has, worked incredibly hard to be the greatest player he can be um, with the tools he has. But I don't think anybody ever expected him to be 
you know, up there on, on the proverbial Mount Rushmore. Um, but he may, you know, he should go down as, as the greatest shooter or among them of all time and one of the great point guards of all time. But I don't think he's a guy who's going to say, you know, if I don't average 25 a game or 30 a game or get MVP of the finals, that somehow my career is incomplete. If he gets a second championship in a three-year span with still many prime years to go and two MVPs already under his belt, I think he's doing all right. And I think that the, the character of that Warriors team, and, I, and I, I will extend this to Kevin Durant going there, is of a bunch of guys who understand that it's about the, the greater good, that it's not about them individually. Draymond Green could be putting up bigger numbers somewhere else, potentially. Klay Thompson, even though you know, he, he said, I'm not sacrificing anything when Durant came, Klay Thompson is a guy who is really a featured player, and his, his profile keeps diminishing partially because of Draymond Green's uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, blossoming the last couple of years and, and, and the role he's played, and now because of Durant. I don't think any of these guys really care about credit. Um, it, that's not what what defines them, and that's I think what's made them great as a team. And I think that that's that's the culture they've established. Totally agree with you, Howard Beck of Bleacher Report. A few more minutes with him here on five sixty WQAM. Uh, the last thing I want to ask you, basketball wise, and then I want to also ask you about Frank DeFord, who I saw you were tweeting about earlier today. Uh, but last thing I'll ask you, basketball wise. These two teams were so dominant this season, and it seemed preordained in a way that they were going to meet. It is now the third straight year that they are meeting, and it seems like they could do this for a couple of more. How much longer would you predict, uh, to make you make another prediction, uh, that, they, that they can sustain this? And then who are the, I guess, the, the best contenders in best in position to make it so that this isn't the finals, not just next year, but the year after and the year after that? You know, one of my producers at Bleacher Report asked me this question last week because we're doing these weekly, like, 60-second kind of, uh, you know, takes, whatever. I voice over some stuff. We do some video. And they were saying, give me the the team that's going to to stop this, east or west, who's going to prevent us from seeing part four next year. I don't have an answer. I mean, I just don't, you know, could it be the Spurs? Yeah, maybe. Um, could the Rockets get somebody to push them over the top? Maybe. Is there anybody in the East who's even close? No. <laughs> you know, I mean, if the Celtics get Paul George and Gordon Hayward and Jimmy Butler and Markel Fultz, okay, maybe, probably still not. Um, I mean, you know, there, there, is, there is no reason to think – as we sit here now, and look, it's it's we're not even to June yet. Uh, we got to get through a draft and free agency and trades. We'll see what the league looks like in October. But last July, when Durant made his move, I thought it was pretty clear we're heading for part three of Warriors Cavs, and the Warriors are that much better than they were. And there was no reason to think any other outcome was likely, barring serious injuries to one or both of those teams. And I, I just don't see any team that's emerging that's going to knock one of them off unless LeBron, you know, falls off the proverbial cliff, you know, health-wise, um, productivity-wise, or unless something else befalls the Warriors, or, you know, the, the you know, so Durant decides to go somewhere else in free agency. I mean, these things aren't going to happen, though. Um, injuries you can't predict, but these teams are going to be largely intact, and there's no reason to think anybody can take either of them down. Is that good for the NBA? Well, rivalries are good for the NBA. The finals will should be interesting as a result, but lack of suspense... Uh, a feeling of, of the finals being preordained is not good for the NBA. 
Lastly, just want to ask you uh, pretty generically about Frank DeFord. Uh, I know he was a sports writing hero of yours, and as you made your uh, very successful career uh, with the New York Times and Bleacher Report and everywhere else that you've written, um, this is uh, someone you looked up to. What made Frank DeFord special to you, Howard? Yeah, not just, by the way, a sports writing hero to me, but my gosh, I think everybody, if you looked at Twitter today or followed everybody, uh, everybody I follow was all tweeting their admiration and, and love of him as well. Um, he's just so literary. He was just so, his writing was so smart. His reporting was so uh, textured. Um, and he just, there was a sophistication, and you know, the word elegant comes up all the time. There was an elegance about his writing and about the man. I never met him, unfortunately. Really wish I had. Um, but, you know, I started reading him when I was in, you know, teen, preteen years, you know, reading Sports Illustrated. And he just had a way of, of, of telling a story, of describing scenes and people. And, um, you know, he, it, it, was, it was not, you know, dropping, you know, big-time vocabulary on you or anything. It was just a, a, the way he, he sewed it all together. It was just, like I say, an elegance to the writing that, you know, if you love sports and you love reading about sports, you thought, you know, this guy is doing it better than anyone. And if you decide you wanted to do that as a career, you're thinking, I wish I could write like this guy someday. Um, he was just an inspiration to, you know, multiple generations of sports writers. And uh, his, uh, his voice is going to be missed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the cool things of today, it sucks the reason, but seeing a lot of his pieces posted, uh, I haven't had the time to go read them, but I certainly will this week. Um, a couple I, I've gotten a little bit through, but it, it, it's amazing how good he was. And the writing is, is timeless in many ways. Um, and you obviously shared a couple of those. So thanks for sharing and, and thanks for uh, sharing the memories with us and the basketball knowledge with us. Always good to catch up, man. We'll do it again soon. Thanks for having me, Craig. Appreciate it. Right now, it is my pleasure to bring in Tim Bontemps of the Washington Post. Their national NBA writer does a terrific job. We saw Steve Kerr today. Uh, I guess he talked to you guys out in Oakland. Um, what did he have to say about his health? And is there a possibility that he's going to coach in this series? Uh, and then I guess you can also tell everybody why he was talking today instead of Mike Brown, who will be coaching at least game one. Yeah, Mike Brown had the flu, so it was kind of interesting. When he walked, when we walked into the gym today, I was looking around. I didn't see Mike, and I thought that was kind of weird. And then uh, all of a sudden, Steve Kerr walks over, and you kind of go, "Hey, is uh, is is this gonna is this gonna mean that Steve is gonna actually you know make some kind of announcement?" Uh, it turned out that Mike was just under the weather for the day, and so he filled in. And uh, you know, it was interesting to talk to Steve. He hadn't had a full media availability since. Uh, since April 23rd, when he announced in Portland he was out indefinitely. And you could see that, you know, he had his personality and, you know, he was cracking a couple jokes and had some insightful comments. But, you know, you could also see that by the end of it, he, he was kind of had to go sit. He went and laid down after it. And, you know, I, I think for as much as everybody would like to see him come back and coach uh, in the NBA Finals starting on Thursday, it's just hard to see. Uh, how he's physically going to be able to get through that series. So, you know, for for as much as it kind of briefly became a, a thing today, that well, maybe Steve can can find his way back. Uh, I think it I think it's more likely that despite the fact that he's doing better, we're going to see Mike Brown uh, coach this team for the next couple of weeks, and then hopefully by the time next season starts, Steve is going to be fully back to health and ready to go. Yeah, what is 
kind of going on? I mean, we know it's complications from the back surgery, but I mean, at this point, he's had to take two significant leaves of absences in the last two years. What is his long-term coaching like prospects, his long-term coaching future? Did he talk at all about that today? I mean, he hasn't really discussed that, but I, I, it's kind of the it's the question that's undoubtedly kind of hanging over this team, right? I mean, it's like what what is his what is his long term status? Um, you know, Steve, you know, Steve's been going through a lot. I mean, if you go back and look at pictures of him when the when the Warriors won the championship in Cleveland in 2015, and you look at him now, he just looks like a different person. And you know, the thing that people don't realize is that even even this year while he was coaching and even last year when he came back, he, this, these symptoms from this botched back surgery have never gone away. Um, he's just a really tough SOB, and so he's kind of fought through them and, and done his job because he's also you know, probably the most competitive person that works for the Warriors too. So, um, you know, he's, he's really fought through a lot of stuff and – you know, I think that, you know, everybody seems pretty optimistic that this current path he's on could eventually lead to him, you know, kind of finally feeling better eventually. But, you know, in the short term, uh, it's just hard to see him being able to get well enough to coach this team in the, for the next couple of weeks. And it, it's hard for me to think, and he even kind of hinted at it today, uh, if he's not back for game one of the finals, unless something happens to Mike Brown unexpectedly, I, I don't. I don't think we're going to see Steve coach this team again this season. Tim Bontemps of the Washington Post with me, Craig Hoffman, here on WQAM. I'm in for Dono tonight. Uh, This series is going to be far more about players than coaches, so let's wrap up the coaching thing real quick and then get to the players and the things that will actually decide the series. Just very simply, the drop-off between Mike Brown and Steve Kerr is what? I actually don't think it really matters in, in in this series. I mean, the, the one thing that people I don't think quite realize about the situation the Warriors are in is that Steve is around. Like he he's in meetings, uh, he's he's in film sessions, he's talking to the team before, during, and after games in the locker room. Uh, he's really doing everything but physically coaching during the games, uh, which he's also already discussing with Mike Brown in terms of situ- substitution patterns and that kind of stuff. And, and I actually think you know if you go back to last year in the NBA Finals, Steve. Steve's a guy who always is willing to play everybody on his team. Played Anderson Verjao in Game Seven. He played Fessa Zazili in Game Seven. They were combined minus eighteen and eighteen minutes. Uh, I don't think Mike Brown's going to do that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, he he's got four Hall of Famers on his team, and I think he's going to ride them all into the ground if he has to. So, I, I think even in a short-term series, it it might not even hurt having Mike coach the team. And I, I certainly don't think that you know they're gonna they're gonna win or lose this series because of anything Mike Brown does. Tim Bontemps of the Washington Post with us here on WQAM. All right, the players that are going to decide this series, how different is Steph Curry going into this series versus the banged-up version that we had going into last year, and how much more effective do you expect him to be? Oh, I think he's going to be really good, and, and he looks totally different. I mean, people people forget. I mean, that guy had what probably was a six-week recovery in a normal situation for an MCL sprain for him where he came back in two weeks and yeah, he had some good games along the way. Uh, but he, he also clearly didn't look right the entire time. I mean, all anybody has to do is go back and remember the play when, uh, he couldn't get by Kevin love at the end of game seven of the finals to see that this guy who had been lighting up the league all season, just didn't have 
the same kind of burst that he did before. So, you know, I, I think that I, I think that Steph, Steph has been incredible in these playoffs. I think he's a, he's a guy that knows the history of the league, has always studied it, and he knows that people have been saying stuff about him going back for a couple of years now for not getting getting it done at the highest level at the biggest stage of the NBA Finals. So I personally think he's going to have a huge Finals here over the next couple of weeks. How much does the familiarity between these two teams affect this series, or does the Durant factor blow that completely out of the water? I mean, I think it. I think it affects it some, but I, I mean, look, I, it, it, these teams, whether they played before in the playoffs or not, you know, if you're in the NBA Finals, you already know each other, and you, you, you've spent all year studying each other. So, I mean, it, it, that that stuff is a little overrated, and you know, frankly, you know. The fact that Duran is there, and you know guys like Kyle Korver and Daniel Williams are there on the other side. I mean, it's just they are very different teams, even than they were a year ago. So, you know, I, I think as far as you know, knowing exactly how things are going to go because of how it went in the past, I, I think that's a little different than it than it might have otherwise been. When I look at this series, and so often playoff series are so matchup driven, I do think Durant is a. And I mean, obviously, he's Kevin Durant. He's a phenomenal basketball player, probably the second best player on the planet. So he's going to make a difference in any series. But the fact that he's going to demand LeBron James's attention defensively, and that means that, for instance, LeBron can't guard Steph in certain situations. Um, I think that is an enormous factor in the matchup in this series. Do you think that is how Cleveland plays that? LeBron is going to stick with Durant the entire time um, and and then live with the results of the other four guys defending Golden State's other four? I mean, they might put put him on some other people sometimes, but I think if you just look at kind of the way the teams are laid out, he's going to have to start guarding Durant. I mean, I don't think he has a choice. If you look at their starting lineup, you know, Tristan Thompson will guard whoever the center is, probably at the start of the game, Zaza Pachulia. Uh, Kevin Love's going to be on Draymond Green, and then LeBron's going to have to guard uh, Kevin Durant. You know, I mean, I think I think the bigger thing for the Cavs is that they have nowhere to hide Kyrie Irving anymore. There's no Harrison Barnes to put out there. So, mm-hmm. you know, if, if in that base lineup you've got Kyrie Irving guarding either Clay Thompson or or Steph Curry, and that, that's not going to end well for him. LeBron has had two of the best final series we've ever seen the past two years. How does Golden State go about trying to limit him uh, like they've been unable to do the past two years, even though they won it two years ago? I, I don't think they're going to necessarily worry about that. I mean, to me, you know, LeBron is is playing so well. I think you're going to just kind of accept he's going to put up big numbers. I think when you're playing against him, the goal should be to limit everybody else. You know, if, if only one of he and Kyrie go off, that's a win. If If they don't allow guys like, you know, Corver and Channing Fry and Darren Williams and uh, J.R. Smith to get open to get Kevin Love to get a bunch of open threes. That's a win. So uh, I think it's less about how are we going to shut down LeBron and more how do we make sure that nobody besides LeBron uh, is given, you know, is allowed to, to really get going and, and make this to where Cleveland has three and four guys going for big numbers instead of just him and maybe Kyrie. Tim Bontemps of the Washington Post with me, Craig Hoffman, here on Miami Sports Radio 560 WQAM. Um, Obviously, we talked a little bit about Durant. Cleveland has a couple of those names that you mentioned earlier, the acquisitions. Are any of those players, you think, enough to really change this series in any meaningful way? So, like, any, let's say any of the new pieces on either side that are not named Kevin Durant. 
No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think I think the biggest thing that happened with the new pieces for Cleveland is that I don't think they can play the way that allowed them to win the series last year. When you go back and look at that series, they had a really specific game plan, right? They they wanted to make the games really physical. They wanted to get to you know five six minutes to go in the fourth quarter in a tie game, and then say, all right, we've got two of the best isolation scores in the league in Kyrie Irving and LeBron James, so we're going to let them try to win this game for us. I don't think they could do that now. Um, when you when you look at the fact that they've got a lot of offense first guys, you know guys like Corver and Williams, who they went and got, you know Channing Fry who couldn't really play in that series last year. Obviously Kyrie Irving, Kevin Love, all those guys are are all basically only one way players on offense. And you know, to me, I just look at this series and I, I just don't see how Golden or uh, Cleveland is going to be able to effectively guard Golden State for large stretches of the game. And I, I think that. You know, as far as trying to break down how this is going to play out, you know, every time somebody tries to, to convince me that Cleveland's going to make this competitive, that's what I just keep coming back to, that I, I just don't see how Cavaliers are going to be able to guard Golden State well enough to to really make this the kind of long competitive series I think we all hope that it's going to be. Yeah, I tend to lean that way, too, that we've all waited for this finals all year and we think it's going to be competitive, and I just, I just think Golden State's flat better. What's your prediction for the series, if you've published that at all yet? I haven't published it yet, but I've been pretty open about the fact that I think the Warriors are probably going to win in five games. I mean, I, I think, you know, if you go back to last season, look at everything that had to happen for Cleveland to win that series and not lose in five games. You had to have Steph Curry not at 100%. You had to have uh, Draymond Green get suspended for game five. You had to have Andre Iguodala's back get tight on him. You had to have uh, Andrew, Bogut, Andrew Bogut get hurt. Uh, you had to have LeBron and Kyrie both play completely insane the final three games of that series. And you had to have Harrison Barnes go 5-32 the final three games, all of which are basically wide-open shots. So, you know, it, it's not – none of that is to make excuses or say that uh, Cleveland didn't deserve the championship. Uh, totally, anybody who says that is, is crazy. They, they, they rightfully won that championship and, and totally deserve it. But – it also, at the same time, you know, if you're going to logically and reasonably look at these things, it, it's, it's also reasonable to say, look, Golden State had to have a lot of things go wrong to even lose last year, and now they have a deeper team overall and have replaced Harrison Barnes with Kevin Durant. So, right. uh, to me, and, and even on top of that, they went through a bruising Western Conference Finals last year, played the Thunder to seven games, uh, one of the most incredible series I've ever covered. You know, I was at every game of that series, and it was intense. And then they immediately went into the finals against the Cavs. So, you know, I, you know, I just think if you stack up all those things, one on top of the other, and then look at how everything is lined up for Golden State this year, it, it's just hard to convince me that this series should be closer than that one was. And up until game five last year, it wasn't very close at all. Yeah, no doubt. Um, another interesting aspect of this series, it's the third in a row, and when you start to look around the league, you wonder how many in a row this could go. History tells us that this isn't going to go on much longer because it's never happened like this before. It's the, the first time ever that two teams have faced in three straight finals, uh, faced each other in right. three straight finals. When you look at the challengers on either side, some of the rumors that are going out, a Chris Paul to San Antonio, a Blake Griffin to Miami, um, some of these rumors that are floating out there, um, 
what teams are in position to actually change so that the 2018 finals don't look like the 2017, 2016, and 2015 finals? I mean, I think probably if you're going to look around, the team that has the best chance to change this dynamic is the Boston Celtics. I mean, if you look at the Celtics, they obviously got to the conference finals this year. They, they have the number one pick to get a guy like Markel Fultz. They have the assets to go get a guy like Paul George or, or, or Jimmy Butler in a trade. They can also sign Gordon Hayward without too much trouble uh, using cap space. So they, they could have a team that looks much different next year and has a lot more firepower. Uh, but I, I think more in the long term, I, I think to me, the more likely way this ends is if one of these teams takes a drop. And to me, the team that's more likely to do that is Cleveland. You look, you know, LeBron could potentially leave as a free agent next summer. Uh, they have a lot of older players. They spent a lot of money. They've traded away a lot of draft picks. They don't really have a lot of ways to improve this team over time. So, you know, I, I think as you look ahead, you know, to me, it's just uh, it's hard for me to see how uh, Cleveland is going to maintain this pace, especially because to do so is going to require LeBron to continue to play 100-plus games a year and be superhuman year after year after year. And at some point, you know, you would think his body will begin to betray him a little bit. So, um, you know, I, I would say next year is probably more likely than not that there's, these two teams are the same. But once you get to 2019 and beyond, I think that's when you really have to start to look out, around and start to identify teams, whether it's Boston or Milwaukee with a guy like Giannis Tedekupo, you know, some of these other teams that could potentially start to, to get in the mix here and maybe finally end this, uh, this run of dominance these two teams have had. Tim, uh, great work from the finals so far, and we'll look forward to the work when they actually start. Great work throughout the playoffs. Always enjoy reading, uh, reading you. Always enjoy having you on. Thanks for the time, and uh, we'll definitely talk uh, here as the finals get going. Sounds good, Craig. Thanks for having me, man. Good to catch up with you. Craig Hoffman in for Alex Dono. It's the Alex Dono Show on Miami Sports Radio 560 WQAM. Pleasure to bring in now my good friend Damon Amendolara, who is actually... I was with Damon this weekend in New York City. Uh, now that I've returned to my microphone, he returned to his today, uh, and we're back working. We figure we we get together here on the radio for all of your listening pleasure. At least we hope it's pleasurable in some form or fashion. And then, DA, as we as we took to the microphones today, uh, we were given a, a gift that, uh, in, a, in a humane sense, we probably didn't want because it's it's a it's a negative story for sure. But uh, in the middle of the sports talk desert, Tiger Woods provided us with quite something to talk about. As the news broke in the middle of your show of his DUI, what was kind of your initial reaction and take on uh, where Tiger Woods is at this point in his in his life? You know, when my update guy mentioned that to me during a commercial break, uh, I said, I mean, my first reaction was, wow, are you kidding? Wow. I mean, that was kind of a jarring piece of news. And then, you know, you look at the mugshot, and while it's depressing and it's sad and it's pathetic, he's not the last person on the list that you would say would get a DUI. You know, we're kind of at the point in time where it's just sadness surrounding his career. And um, what struck me about Tiger Woods is that Tiger made a golf career out of being meticulous and perfect, that everything in his form, in his swing, in his short game, in his long game, in his clubs, in his equipment, in how he studied the course, everything was meticulous, everything down to a T. How he looked wearing red specifically on Sunday, 
you know, he wasn't a sloppy golfer. He wasn't a uh, fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants golfer. He wasn't necessarily a creative golfer. He was meticulous. It's a little bit like Tom Brady preparing for a game plan or Peyton Manning preparing for a defense. And yet his personal life is so sloppy. His personal life has been this kind of never-ending parade of mistresses and, uh, you know, porn stars and uh, ladies of the night. And now a, uh, a rehab that feels kind of sloppy and never-ending of does he really ever have an intention to come back? Is he trying to kind of quietly retire and fade into the background? Or is he really trying to come back? Does he care about Nicholas's 18 or not? And personal life, obviously what has happened with his wife um, and his family, but now also with him getting this DUI, it's, it's such a weird kind of dichotomy where professionally it was about attention to detail and perfection. And when, in, when you look at the interior, the personal life was such a mess for such a long time. And this is just another log on that fire. To me, it's a very similar chord that was struck of the the fall from grace. And part of that fall is that so much of what we thought he was fell apart. And in a way, it, it almost diminishes what he did on the course because you're like, wait, was that all fraudulent? But he won 14 majors and was the best any of us ever saw do it um, at the absolute peak of his powers. Obviously, the Tiger Slam, no, no one had ever seen that before four straight. Uh, back in 2000, and so I, I, I'm trying to think of other athletes that are anywhere close to that. Lance Armstrong is, is about as good as I've gotten. Obviously, O.J. Simpson's fall from grace happened in his post-athletic career. Uh, Mike Tyson is one that comes to mind. Are there, are there any others that when you think of like fraudulent athletes that can measure up to uh, somewhere near what Tiger Woods' story seems to be? Well, that would be kind of your Mount Rushmore of, uh, of humiliation right there. Although I would say there's kind of a difference between Lance Armstrong and the rest of those guys because Lance Armstrong cheated at his success while the rest of those guys achieved their success rightfully on the athletic field and then everything kind of went to crap off of it. Um, maybe you would think about guys um, that are steroid users in baseball like a Roger Clemens or an Alex Rodriguez um, or Barry Bonds, although Bonds was never kind of overly embraced. But, um, you know, Clemens and A-Rod were kind of considered, and, and Bonds, again, the greatest of their generation, one of the greats ever, when we didn't know they were on steroids. And then once we did, the whole thing kind of came tumbling down. But Alex Rodriguez was never also kind of this perfect uh, marketable type. I mean, he always seemed to have kind of bumbling affairs with women off the air or off the uh, off the TV or off the, uh, the the playing field, and that also you know kind of um, wasn't necessarily loved by his teammates and seemed like an egomaniac anyway. So I don't know. I think here's the difference with Tiger. It was such a perfectly manicured image that was obviously a sham, that everything was about him was attention to detail, as I mentioned, and perfection. Well, in, from an interior standpoint, it was a rollicking mess. Now, maybe it wasn't always a rollicking mess, but um, to where we stand right now, it is. And it's just one of the craziest sports stories. It's obviously the craziest golf story ever, because golf doesn't necessarily create big personalities that succeed a bit. I mean, John Daly's that part of that, but he never succeeded anywhere near Tiger Woods. From an American sports story, this is kind of the craziest thing ever. And um, I, I just think that 
if you're Tiger Woods now, knowing how much the public already kind of distrusts you from a personal standpoint, to make this decision now in your career is is pretty ridiculously stupid and harmful. And for Tiger at this point in his career in life, it's a little shocking that he would make such a bad decision. Yeah, is there anything he could come out and say that you think would turn? I mean, look, him getting his life straightened out is if there's something to be straightened out beyond just like one wildly bad night of, of and a bad decision in which he got caught. But if there's something to be straightened out, like, is there anything you think he could say that would turn the PR of this that could that could maybe bring back some of his his being beloved? I guess. Well, I don't know if you'll ever get back to being beloved the way that he was because he was beloved for being dominant. And that's where people gravitated to him. It wasn't because he was a human. It wasn't because he showed us these human qualities. It was simply because it wasn't because of humanitarian efforts. It was because he was dominant and he'll never obviously be that again. I think if he wants to humanize himself, which he's done a better job of doing the last couple of years, although I still don't know if he's made tons of inroads, is if the excuse is, look, I'm trying to get back and I'm on a ton of painkillers and I'm not drinking, I'm just, I'm I'm woozy all the time because of back medication or or painkillers and I got behind the wheel of the car and, you know, I didn't know what I was doing because I didn't think I had drank. Okay, maybe that's a decent argument, although he refused the breathalyzer test, uh, uh, apparently, allegedly. Uh, or number two, to just kind of come forward and go, I'm in a really depressed spot right now because I'm no longer the great golfer that I used to be. And what human being wouldn't be able to kind of sympathize with that? He just said, these last couple of years have been ridiculously hard because I'm trying to live up to what I know my athletic greatness was and what your expectations of me were, and I just can't get there. And it really bums me out or whatever that is. And and. I think then America would their heart would sink a little bit and and kind of relate to that. But the the problem is that Tiger's never been relatable in any way, shape or form, and um, it just feels like kind of another spot where the guy is a lost soul right now. Yeah, I I don't think his popularity can come back. I think there's some level of empathy he could create, but I think the popularity is is gone. Damon Mendelara, CBS Sports Radio, middays nine to noon. Uh, here with me, Craig Hoffman, filling in for Alex Dono tonight on Miami Sports Radio 560 WQAM. DA, like August, appearing on the Toyota of Hollywood hotline. The NBA Finals, Damon, are are mercifully going to, I think, actually start this week. Uh, we're actually going to have real basketball games, which hopefully are competitive. Um, I know you talked a little bit of, on your show today about what Kevin Love had to say and why you think the mindset for the Cavs is a good thing with where they are. Yeah, you know, if you're a defending champion, you'd love to be an underdog. And that's what Kevin Love kind of alluded to over the weekend when he said, I laugh when I hear that we're the underdog because we're the defending champions or we're going out to defend our crown. And they're doing it against the team that they beat last year. So if you're the Cavaliers and you're Ty Lue, you have situated yourself perfectly and by no fault of your own because the Warriors are so good, because they added Kevin Durant, because they blew through the West, it feels like they are going to roll in this series to a title. And I would tend to agree that I would lean towards this being Warriors in six, something like that. 
But, um, but boy, you know, if you're the Cavs and you're LeBron and you're Kyrie and you're Kevin Love and you're all of those guys that were there last year, you're going, well, screw this. We beat them last year. We're defending our championship. We have a banner hanging above us from last year because we beat you guys and you're the heavy favorites and people don't think we can do it again. That's kind of a, a huge slap in the face. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, you and I spoke about this over the weekend that when you have LeBron, this great equalizer, it's kind of ridiculous to ever assume anything is not going to pan out your way. Now, we saw LeBron lose in the finals a couple of years ago to the Warriors, but he also didn't have his two best players on the floor. This year, he does. And this year, I think the Cavaliers are better than they were last year, and I think they're better than they were two years ago, despite the defensive metrics. I think they're a deeper team with Corver and Darren Williams, etc. So, to kind of assume that this is just going to be a Warriors whitewash is probably ignorant. And I think that's kind of how the Cavaliers are viewing it. And I don't blame them. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I do think the Warriors are the distinct favorites, but I don't, I don't necessarily think that Cleveland has enough, which is amazing because they have a lot. It's just the Warriors have more. What is it that you don't think in the end of the day that the Cavaliers will be able to overcome and why you are leaning towards Golden State? I think when we get to late-game situations uh, in the fourth quarter or if we get pushed to overtime, there are so many scoring options for the Warriors that if one's not working, they've got two or three others to default to. And when, it's, when you're talking about deciding games by, I, I would assume most of these games are really close, by two buckets, three buckets, uh, two possessions, three possessions, however those goes, buckets versus stops. The team that has a default from Steph Curry to Kevin Durant, to Clay Thompson, to Draymond Green, or however the flowchart is going to go, it's just hard for me to imagine that can be overcome by a Cavaliers flowchart that goes LeBron or Kyrie, and then, well, the options just aren't as good. Look, Kevin Love can hit an outside shot, which we all know, but he's not really your third scoring option necessarily. A guy like Kyle Korver can knock down a ton of threes. J.R. Smith has done that in the past as well. Tristan Thompson could be great underneath. But those aren't traditional scoring options if the first two aren't there. And so I just think defensively it's going to be really hard for Cleveland to be able to solve all of those guys for the entire series. But I will say this, Steph Curry's got a lot to prove in this series because Steph Curry has not had two great series against LeBron the last two years. He's had two mediocre ones, and he's gone one and one. If he has a third mediocre one, that's a real problem on his resume. Yeah, I think two years ago he was a lot better than last year, or a lot better than people realized. And then last year he was injured, and I guess in the finals you don't get to, to put that on your resume. Was injured, so don't count this. Um, but I think his life becomes a lot easier when Kevin Durant's out there. Um, are we talking enough about the fact that the Warriors aren't going to have their head coach in this series for probably the entirety of it? I wonder about that as well. I, I thought if we got to a Western Conference Finals with a healthy Spurs team, and I assume they were going to be healthy, with Greg Popovich on the sideline, and it was a Warriors team without Steve Kerr, I thought that that would rear its ugly head. If you had Pop versus Mike Brown in a high-leverage situation, um, I thought that it really would affect the Warriors negatively, and they would be looking into the sideline and wondering, where's our guy? Where's Coach Kerr? And I totally trust Pop over Mike Brown in those crucial situations. So that's where it's going to 
that's where it's going to end up showing itself. But we never got that because the series wasn't competitive. And so now I don't know. There is no, there's no evidence that Mike Brown is right now a, uh, a negative because the Warriors are so good. Now, clearly a healthy Cavs team is way better than an unhealthy Spurs team. So I would imagine that it does end up affecting you. It, affect, it, it will affect them because the margin for error will be so much less. But I don't have any proof that it will. If we had a close Western Conference Finals and there was a game five that was tied with a minute and a half to play and coming out of a timeout, Popovich drew up this and found this for LaMarcus Aldridge and found a way to shut down whatever shots were trying to come their way and and the Warriors looked discombobulated, I would say, see, look, right there, we can say that in the finals this is going to hurt the Warriors. But we just don't have that evidence. So it it feels like we should, but I just can't necessarily say that it definitely will. And Pop versus Mike Brown is a coaching mismatch. I'm not so certain Ty Lue versus Mike Brown is a coaching mismatch. Well, obviously their histories with LeBron would tell you that uh, LeBron would prefer Ty Lue, but now Mike Brown gets to coach Steph and KD and those guys. So that that's, it's an interesting subplot that uh, not, not only that Kerr is gone, but that Mike Brown is the one replacing him. Uh, Damon Mendelar, CBS Sports Radio, with me, Craig Hoffman, here on the Alex Dono Show, Miami Sports Radio, 560 WQAM. All right, now time for the real reason that we're having you on, on the show. Let's tell nice. the story of the number buddy. So we're sitting there uh, in, a, in a, I guess, it was a bar? Is it just like a, a spot in New York City? It's not your traditional it was bar. like a New York City cafe type. Yeah, place. yeah. And you get a text message from? A phone number that was one digit off of mine. It was my same phone number, except the final digit was different. And obviously, I don't know this person. And the text came in and said, howdy there. This is your number, buddy. Just wanted to stop in and say thanks for sharing nine digits. And I personally thought that was the creepiest thing of all time. I don't know <laughs> what the heck this guy or this gal is trying to try to play here. I don't know what their what their final call is. I don't know what their end game is. But I'm creeped out, man. And I I don't know what to do. I don't know if I should alert the authorities. Should I call this number back and say, you know, just don't you ever do that to anybody ever again? Because who knows? This person could be doing this to multiple. Right. There's phone at least numbers. there's Think at least it. eight or nine people, right? Because you're no, one number. Or I guess God, if you go through all ten digits, you could just start changing yeah. any of them, not just the last digit. Exactly. He just changed, or she just changed my last digit. But what happens if you did that to every digit? I think, if I'm not mistaken, that's like nine times nine times nine times nine times yeah. nine, or ten times ten. Whatever that is. Either way, this is a certifiable maniac. This guy's got to be committed. And as both you and I described and discussed as we were just debating this back and forth, this is definitely a dude move. There ain't no chick out there that is going, oh, my God, you're my number buddy. Yeah, absolutely. This is 100%. I'm actually kind of mad at you for for being uh, non— or for for consistently going— or gal, or gal, and pretending like this could actually have been a chick, there's 0% chance that this is a female. This is 100% a Look, dude. You know, I'm a Title Nine. Uh, I've got it. I'm just, I'm about gender I think equality, this is a, so a, a wanna... scenario where women don't necessarily want the equality. <laughs> That's probably true. There's just no way a chick is out there killing time trying to figure out her number buddies. And, and 
frankly, I think this is a sicko. I think it's I think it's completely off the rails for a holiday weekend. Do, do not do this on a holiday weekend. Do not creep me out. Uh, show some respect. So I, I don't know. I, I, I'd like to report this person to the FBI or the CIA because they need to be on some type of watch list. Well, we have their phone number, but I think we, we did possibly come up with a better idea as we're sitting there with, uh, with your sister and one of her friends, and we're all debating of what we should do, and that is unleash the morass on this <laughs> poor soul. For those that are that are not regular listeners of, of Damon's show, his producer Sean Mraz is um, he's a gem of a human being, a New York yeah, hard a unique, ass through and through. Person, yeah, uh, he's yeah. fluffy. He likes to eat Very. a lot, yeah, and oh, yeah. uh, he's he's just Mraz. <laughs> Yeah, and and maybe that's the only thing that, well, that's kind of the perfect explanation for him. I think he's just Mraz. I I wonder if, yeah, we should uh, release Mraz on this person and, uh, you know, get Mraz to, like, start texting him or roping him in or calling him or something like that. I don't know. I haven't figured this out yet. I'm still in shock and awe. But I'm going to tell you right now, if anybody, if anybody's listening, going, oh, you know what? That's a good idea to pick up chicks. That's a good idea to, to find no. friends. Don't do it. No. Do not do it. Just go on Facebook and look for, like, suggested friends. Yeah. Like, that's, that's as creepy as, like, the occasional, like, you get the, the Facebook request from someone with your same name. You're like, what? Mm, what are good you one. doing? Yeah, that's a really good one. You're like, I have no idea who you are. Just because we share a name does not mean no. I now want to uh, know about your likes and dislikes. No, I no. totally agree with that. I don't, you know, this world is becoming a crazier and crazier place. And uh, I think number buddy texting anonymously is just another part of it. And also, if you're going to text me about being a number buddy, give me some of your information, okay? So let me get, be a little transparent because if you're just going to be like, Hey, fun to share nine digits. What you're doing is waiting to see if I take the bait so that I give you some of my information. I don't know you, man. Get away from me. Stop looking at my my phone number. Yeah, man. Definitely, man. Yeah. All right, so we'll we'll look forward uh, on Twitter to see what you do with this. At DA on CBS, I still say you you figure out how to to call anonymously. That's like if there's some kind of pound, whatever, whatever number to do this from a production studio and hide the number and then just unleash morass, and that's what I would do. But that's just me. You know what? We might take that into account. Believe me, that's very high atop the power rankings of potential outcomes of this. So uh, we'll keep you posted. All right. Uh, if you if you want to listen to how this plays out, you can listen to DA 9 to noon weekdays on CBS Sports Radio. You can listen always on the Radio.com app or on your computer at Radio.com. DA, appreciate you always, my friend. Good to see you this weekend, and uh, I will, we will certainly talk soon. You too, buddy. Thanks, man. See you soon. Thanks for checking out the NBA Finals Geared edition of the Best of Pod. Hope you also enjoyed the Tiger Woods talk and the bit of nonsense there at the end with DA. What is a chat between me and DA without a fair amount of nonsense? The answer is, of course, nothing. Uh, If you enjoyed this, there's more Best of to come. Lots of other topics. um, Some really just, it's it's eclectic. Uh, The other one, it's got a little bit of baseball, a little bit... Uh, on Frank DeFord, actually a really good interview with Brian Curtis of The Ringer on Frank DeFord, and then a Memorial Day story that is worth sharing with you, and I hope that you will share 
with others. That's on the other part of the Best of Pod, so make sure you check that out as well. Appreciate you listening to this one. As always, appreciate any subscription, rate, or review on iTunes, unless the rating is that this stunk. Hope it didn't. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you check out the other part. Thanks for listening. See ya.